Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Ronald Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a part-time assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, where he has taught for over 35 years. He's a longtime student of mindfulness meditation and serves on the board of directors and faculty of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. Dr. Siegel also teaches internationally about the application of mindfulness practice in psychotherapy and other fields and maintains a private clinical practice in Lincoln, Massachusetts. He's the author of numerous books, including The Mindfulness Solution, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems, and a new book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. In the episode, Dr. Siegel explains that we didn't evolve to be happy and what to do about that, how to incorporate mindfulness meditations into your everyday life to feel less stressed and anxious, what to do with your natural inclination to compare yourself to others, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Siegel. Enjoy. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Siegel. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd love if you could start by telling us a bit about your background and specifically what led you to pursue a career in psychology. Well, um, you know, I, the, the uh, probably the truth of the matter is, which I can speak about now because this is coming into a modern research focus, is that I was actually a kid who was involved uh, in the counterculture in the late 1960s and the early 1970s uh, in New York. And uh, I became very interested, as did many of my peers, in uh, the nature of consciousness. And some of that interest was inspired by experiences with psychedelic drugs, which were quite uh, prevalent at the time. And I, frankly, I had some experiences that were so transformative and so interesting that they got me interested in who knows about this, who who charts these waters. And it turns out that the people who knew about that were in two camps. They were in contemplative traditions, uh, people who were involved in doing uh, meditative practices in various cultures, and they were in Western psychology. Uh, so it was actually that as an entree. And the reason why I speak about it more openly today is interestingly in the psychology field, the possibility of using uh, psychedelics to augment psychotherapy is now uh, quite a hot topic. So it uh, it turns out that my uh, uh, my past that I left behind quite some time ago actually has some relevance to the current field of psychology as well. Hmm, it's kind of like fashion, right? It circles back at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think you could think of it that way. And the other thing that this did was it interested 
introduced me to mindfulness practices and meditative traditions. And then that brought me into contact with a group of people. So I'm at uh, Harvard Medical School, and it brought me into contact with uh, a number of other clinicians and researchers here uh, who themselves had gotten interested in meditative practices at a young age to start exploring how these practices might enhance and enrich uh, psychotherapy and how what we know from clinical practice and from the research world could inform these wisdom traditions that uh, meditative practices come by. So that's also how I got involved in this particular branch of psychology that I've been uh, very active in for some decades. Hmm. I know you've done a lot of research and writing on happiness, and as you mentioned, mindfulness and meditation and compassion and chronic illness. And I want to cover all of those topics, but I know you said that we didn't evolve to be happy. Can you explain that and why it's important to understand that? Well, increasingly, as psychologists and others study the patterns that we see in the human mind and uh, correspondingly in the human brain, we realize that the brain developed all sorts of systems that were designed for survival. And as it turns out, those systems that are designed for survival don't actually make us feel very good. They're very helpful for survival on the African savanna, but uh, currently, particularly in modern life, they're rather poorly adapted to what we need to do. And I, I can give you some examples of that. Yeah, uh, I, would I always love examples. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the leading one is our propensity to think all the time. Uh, if you could imagine our ancestor, let's say uh, Lucy, who was uh, the, uh, the the skeleton of Australia Pithecus that was found uh, uh, many years ago in the African savanna. Uh, so she lived about four, four and a half million years ago. And she was our great, 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 et cetera, grandmother, because we all share a bit of her DNA. And we know that she, she survived because we have her DNA today. And uh, the question is, how did she survive? She was about three feet tall, and uh, she wasn't very powerful. Uh, she wasn't very fast. One of the first things you learn if you go on a so-called walking safari in Africa is, you know, please, please, the guides say, no matter what happens, don't run. Why? Because mm -hmm. everything out there that's scary is faster than you are. You see that lumbering hippopotamus in the mud puddle? 38 miles an hour when he gets going, the half-blind rhino behind the tree, 42 miles an hour. And worse, if they're a predator and you run, they're going to think you're prey and they're going to go after you for lunch. So hmm. she couldn't outrun dangerous creatures. Um, you know, her hide, if you will, wasn't very uh, strong. Her sense of smell was limited. Just ask a dog. Uh, you know, her eyesight was better than the rhino, but not as good as a giraffe or an eagle. You know, how did she survive? Well, she had a few things going for her. She had a, a fight or flight system, super important for survival, this ability to have an emergency response when we're threatened, but not so good for happiness because this fight or flight system leads to us feeling anxious so much of the time. She had a prehensile thumb, in other words, an opposable thumb, so she could pick up objects and make tools. That doesn't give us too many troubles. That, that's been quite useful for us. Um, she was a social animal, which is quite helpful. She could hunt with her peers or use one another to warn one another of dangers. But the big, the big ace in the hole she had, the, the, the really uh, the uh, skill and the ability that separated her mind from all the others was her ability to think. Right, hers was less developed than ours, but she began to have this ability to remember the past, to examine what happened, and to strategize for the future. How am I going to optimize my survival in the future? But the thing about this brain that she developed that was quite good at this is that it wasn't some neutral computer. Uh, it developed for evolutionary purposes what is called by cognitive science, scientists a negativity bias. It's what my friend Rick Hansen, uh, who wrote a book called The Buddha's Brain, uh, he describes it this way. He says the negativity bias describes how our brain is like Velcro for bad experiences and tough land for good ones. Bad experiences happen and they stick to the pan. Good experiences whoosh, slide right off the pan. And that's what we see in our modern brains. 
Now, why did this happen? Well, if you could imagine Lucy out there on the savanna, and let's say that she came face to face with a lion, she could make one of two types of errors. And these actually correspond to what we call type one and type two errors in modern scientific research. A type one error would be to look at, let's say, an ambiguous shape, some beige form behind some bushes. A type one error or a false positive would be to say, oh my God, that's a lion, when it was really just a beige rock. A type two error, on the other hand, would be to look at the same thing and say, eh, it's probably just a beige rock, when it was really a lion. Now, you could imagine that Lucy and her compatriots could make countless type one errors and still live to pass on their DNA. Okay, they'd be nervous, they'd be cautious, but they wouldn't get killed. One type two error, thinking that the lion is really a beige rock, and that is the end of your DNA line. So we might imagine happy hominids in Lucy's day, holding hands, telling stories about dynamite sexual encounters and luscious pieces of fruit, and enjoying all sorts of positive memories, but they were not our ancestors. Why? Because statistically, they died before they got to reproduce. Our ancestors were the ones running around the African savanna going, oh my God, that could be a lion. Uh-oh, is that one of those poisonous snakes? Oh no, one of those plants with the spikes? I remember when Uncle Hor Horace got stuck in them. And on and on and on. A cliff, a rock. And they would remember every bad thing that happens. One thing that we see in clinical work as mental health professionals these days, one thing that we see in people who take up meditation practices, anybody who pays attention to the nature of the mind, is we start to see, oh my God, it's full of so many fears. It's full of so many catastrophic thoughts. We have so many depressive thoughts thinking that things are never going to be okay. And this is all in part the legacy of this negativity bias. Super helpful for survival and passing on your DNA, not so helpful for being happy. That's really fascinating. So what, what are some of the major misconceptions you think people have about what makes us happy? Well, you know, the biggest misconception, and this is the most basic one, is actually due to another evolutionary accident that was very good for survival, but not so good for happiness. And this one is our tendency to want to approach and hold on to pleasure and do everything we can to avoid discomfort or pain. It turns out that when we look at the variety of psychological disorders that people suffer from, they all involve this attempt to avoid discomfort. Let me give you a few examples and then I'll, I'll loop back around to answer more directly your question. Um, let's take, oh, drinking alcohol or eating ice cream, for example. Most of us don't do these things exclusively for the taste. Well, let's take alcohol, for example. If, if, uh, if you or our listeners ever have a glass of wine or a beer or even a, a mixed drink, you know, how many of us do that exclusively for the taste? Even though we've developed a very flavorful drug delivery system, most of us do it because we want to change one state of mind, a not so pleasant one, into a more pleasant one. So we've had a hard day at work and muscular skeletally, we look something like a pretzel from all the tension that's developed. And we think, you know, having a beer right now might be nice. Having a glass of wine might be nice. It'll help me to relax. Or we're going to go to a party and there are going to be people there who we don't know or sometimes worse, people there who we do know, and we think, you know, <laughs> I'd like to start this party with a little bit of a cocktail. I think that would make me feel more relaxed. We're changing one state into another, or I'm not as much of a drinker, but I can go for ice cream or cookies or things like this, and it's not because I'm hungry so much as because it's very pleasant to eat them, and in the moment that I'm eating, eating them, whatever tensions are happening in my life, whatever disquiet is happening in my mind, that's replaced by the yummy taste of the good food. Mm. So most of our problems, let's say, with, you know, substance use, even many of our problems with eating, I understand you work with eating disorders, have to do with our difficulty tolerating states of mind that are unpleasant and turning towards some substance or food or something in order to feel a little bit better. But the same idea of trying to avoid displeasure and trying to hold on to the pleasant things causes a lot of other problems we have. Let's say, you know, virtually everybody struggles with anxiety to some degree. 
if I get anxious before public speaking or talking on a podcast, for instance, or I get anxious before flying in airplanes, but I do those things anyway, well, I don't have an anxiety disorder. I'm just a nervous guy. But if I avoid the podcast invitation, avoid accepting it, or avoid flying on the airplane because I don't want to feel anxious, well, yeah, then I have an anxiety disorder. And in fact, you know, people who are uh, avoidant of all sorts of things, whether it's social contacts or dogs or bridges, the, you know, uh, the simple ones, or you know, uh, avoidant of applying for the dream job or asking someone out on a date. There's so many things that we avoid because we're afraid of the anxiety that we'll feel when we do it, or we're afraid of the disappointment if it doesn't turn out well. And even things like depression are very, very tied to emotional or experiential avoidance. Uh, you know, if we think of how depression is different from sadness, uh, you know, when we're depressed, we're kind of shut down and deadened and nothing has interest for us and we have very little energy. When we're sad, we may be sad, but we're alive and we're connected to other people. You know, many of us have been at a funeral at some point where, you know, everyone's quite sad about, you know, having lost the deceased, but somebody cracks a joke or remembers a funny story and we're there, we're present, we're alive. And this is because depression also involves this kind of shutting down on emotional experience, trying to avoid painful stuff. But then in the process, we wind up, you know, not being connected to our life, not having pleasure in anything, not having... Uh, uh, any um, any fulfillment, or I shouldn't say any, but having less fulfillment in our lives. So we see that across the board with all sorts of emotional difficulties, they all have to do with this tendency to want to avoid pain and hang on to pleasure. And it makes perfect sense evolutionarily that that would be um, how our brains evolve, because in general, you know, uh, it was better for our survival and our chances of reproduction to, you know, have good food, be in a comfortable temperature range, not be, you know, threatened by wild animals to do things that were pleasurable and things that are painful, everything from cutting a finger to being hungry, we would want to avoid because they weren't so good for our survival. But the same basic brain mechanism, we wind up applying to other things like anxiety or like difficulty with sadness or difficulty with being uncomfortable going to a party. And in this way, this very basic brain mechanism, very good for survival, causes us all sorts of grief. Um, mm. And there's one third area that maybe we can get into in, in some detail, either now or a little bit later, which is that we have this tendency to compare ourselves to others. You know, one of the patterns that you see out there on the African savanna. I remember going on a so-called uh, driving safari, which is basically being driven around by a naturalist in a Jeep. And the naturalist would point out in species after species, the same basic pattern. There would be this dominant male surrounded by reproductively promising females. And then over in the next field, there's a group of usually slightly younger males doing the species specific equivalent of playing basketball, right? You know, honing their skills to become dominant. Well, what's with that? What's the concern with dominance? Well, it turns out that across almost all social species, there's a jockeying for position. We call it pecking orders, right? When we're talking about uh, chickens or other birds. This even happens among crickets. You can put certain crickets in a box and inside of a few seconds, they will organize themselves into a dominance hierarchy. And developmental psychologists show us that kids do this with one another. They know who's the top dog after a very few minutes of being in a little group with other kids. Even kids that, uh, you know, as young as four years old will be organized mm -hmm. this way. So um, this propensity to compare ourselves to others and kind of organize ourselves into these dominance hierarchies, while it was one thing out on the African savanna, but the way it shows up now in modern humans is worrying about self-esteem. What do people think about me? How am I? Am I more successful than my friend? Am I less successful than my friend? Am I better looking, not as good looking, you know, kinder, not as kind, smarter, dumber, you know, all of the thousands and thousands of ways that we compare ourselves to others and try to feel good about ourselves all day long. This also is our evolutionary legacy. Our brain evolved to do this, but oh boy, does it make us unhappy nowadays. 
Especially with social media, I would imagine. Oh gosh, social media just ramps us up and puts it on steroids. I mean, how many people see an Instagram or Facebook post that says, woke up this morning, had the runs again, I think my girlfriend's going to leave me and I'm going to get a bad performance review at work. No, it's like, here I am in this fantastic place with fantastic people doing fantastic things and you're not here. That's what we see on social media. So everybody is tortured by all of the ways in which they're, uh, despite having our curated uh, uh, feeds, nobody feels like they're doing well enough. How do you combat that comparison I don't know if it's a disorder or propensity, especially in the advent of social media. How do you work not to constantly compare yourself? Well, the really good news, and this is really good news about all of these tendencies of the brain to make us miserable, is there are also other instincts that we can harness, but these other, the other instincts that are kind of like antidotes, but we have to cultivate them. In the case of our, our propensity to compare ourselves to others, and you know, I mean, some of us are comparing ourselves to others out there, like, oh, my friend's thinner than I am. Oh, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> he's um, uh, has a bigger job than I do, or whatever. Uh, where sometimes we're comparing ourselves to inner images. Oh, I'm supposed to be kind and nice, but I keep feeling selfish. Um, selfish desires, or, you know, I'm supposed to be generous, but I don't really feel like giving anymore. You know, so some, sometimes it's an inner image we're comparing ourselves to. Sometimes it's an outer image. But luckily, we also have an evolutionary um, instinct toward connection and cooperation. And this one turns out to be a wonderful antidote to our propensity to compare ourselves to others and worry about how we're doing. You think of a situation in which we're in a conversation. I, I invite our listeners, you know, to remember sometime when they were with a, you know, just a close friend talking together and having one of those honest conversations where we share our vulnerabilities with one another. Well, in those moments when we're really connecting to a friend and really sharing our vulnerabilities, we're not worried so much about what they're thinking of us. And in fact, we're not even worrying about what we're thinking of us. Our whole sense of self shifts from being a me comparing to a you to being part of an us. And that tends to lighten the whole thing. This is one of the reasons why I have a recent book on basically this, this topic about um, you know, our relentless self-evaluation and, and how we make ourselves unhappy with it. And, you know, one of the one of the solutions that one of the chapters is called, you know, make a connection, not an impression. You know, we can right. actually decide, you know, as I go through the world, what if I put my energy into connecting with other people instead of impressing them? And this can be both, you know, during the job interview or meeting the, you know, uh, or, you know, the potential in-laws, right? These situations where we feel like we're we're on the spot and we have to make a, an impression. But even there, making a connection is a good idea. But just in general things, you know, when we go to the party, are we going to, you know, show people that we're special or are we going to try to connect with them in a very ordinary human way and and find a way to enjoy our common humanity? So that's... Mm -hmm. That's one antidote. There, there are there are many, many others that we can explore. Is another antidote to get comfortable being uncomfortable? That's what I kind of was thinking about when you were first talking absolutely. of how we avoid discomfort. Right, absolutely. And that loops back into um, the whole idea of uh, mindfulness and using mindfulness practices uh, to help us with this. Uh, a lot of people hear mindfulness and they think, well, that's about relaxation training. Mm, one of the side effects of mindfulness may be, mindfulness practice may be to be more relaxed, but that's that's really not uh, its main function. Its main function is to help us to be at home with, comfortable with, and able to accept our experience, including our emotions, our thoughts, our reactions. And so often our emotions, our thoughts, our reactions, you know, have a painful aspect to them. But with mindfulness practice, we're basically practicing being aware of our present experience with loving acceptance, finding a way to create an inner environment in which it's okay, sweetheart. 
It's okay that we feel sad. It's okay that we feel less than in a given moment. It's okay that we feel frightened. Finding some way to be kind to ourselves while opening to experience. If we can cultivate that skill, well, then we're going to have a lot more flexibility. Because let's say, let's go back to the, uh, the sort of habits that are problematic that involve avoiding pain that, that we were talking about before. When I have the urge to, you know, have that other drink or eat the whole box of cookies, assuming that our thinking brain realizes it's not such a good idea to have the other drink and eat the whole box of cookies. Instead, we can turn our attention to, okay, so what am I trying to avoid here? What's the feeling that I'm trying to make go away. And the more we practice mindfulness, the more we're able to simply stay with those feelings and in fact, feel them as events in the body and be able to tolerate them better so we don't feel compelled to avoid them. We can do a little exercise right now, very simply just to um, uh, illustrate this. And I invite you to, to join me in it and, and our listeners, uh, um, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes if you're driving or something. Don't close your eyes. Uh, but if, if you feel safe doing that, go ahead and close your eyes. And just take a breath or two. Settle into the body a little bit. And now I invite you to bring to mind something that makes you a little bit anxious. Not, not the scariest thing ever, but just something that brings up a little bit of anxiety. And I invite you to notice where you feel that in your body, because anxiety is actually a somatic experience. We can feel it in the body. And maybe put your hand over wherever you feel that. Maybe it's your chest or your belly, wherever it is for you. And just breathe and feel the sensation of anxiety for a moment. And notice how, oh yeah, anxiety really is a bodily sensation. And then let's try sadness. Generate a little bit of sadness. Again, not the saddest thing ever, but just a bit. And notice where you feel that in your body. And try putting your hand over the part of your body where you feel the sadness. And notice, oh yeah, sadness, that is a body sensation, isn't it? Sometimes there's a thought or an image that we bring with it, but a big part of it is this bodily sensation. And then try anger or annoyance. Again, not the worst thing ever, but generate a little bit of anger or annoyance. If you're generally a very nice person who never gets angry, just think of somebody nowadays in the other political party, whichever one that is for you. <laughs> and you'll probably feel some anger or annoyance. We're such a divided country here in the United States at the moment, and many countries in the world are similarly divided. And just feel where that is in the body and put your hand there. And just to give some some time to pleasant emotions too. Now generate a little bit of joy, something that makes you glad or happy. And notice where you feel that in the body. And place your hand there and be with that for a few moments. And if your eyes were closed, I invite you to open them again. And just notice how these different emotions, both the painful ones and one of the pleasant ones, all exist as sensations in the body. Now, if we can practice being with sensations in the body and finding a way to be with them with loving acceptance, well, then we're going to be much freer in our lives because it means, well, almost any situation, what do we worry about? What do we fear? We fear emotions. We either fear anxiety itself, or we fear sadness, or we fear some, some desire that's not satisfied, or maybe we fear anger. It's usually some kind of painful emotion that we fear. So one of the things we learn how to do with mindfulness practice is how to stay with all these changing sensations in the body, let them come and go, 
And this gives us much more capacity to be able to be with difficulty. And this capacity to be with difficulty then becomes one of the ingredients that can really help us when we're struggling with feeling not good enough in some way, when we're comparing ourselves to others and coming up short. Like, well, what's that feeling about? Oh, it's this sinking feeling in my stomach, this feeling of inadequacy. Oh, well, maybe I can learn to just be with those sensations and not have to scramble to fix it, to somehow quick get a new self-esteem boost to make it go away. And all of this gives us a lot more courage and a lot more flexibility in our lives. Do you recommend that people do some type of mindfulness mindfulness meditation like you just led us through on a regular basis? Yeah, absolutely. More formally? So kind of in a formal way every day, would you say? Or well, how there's, often are you... there's a lot of evidence showing that we see substantive changes in brain structure and brain function in people who do this regularly. And this has been studied now for several decades and, you know, the, uh, the evidence coming from brain scans is quite, is quite clear. And the, you know, what's not clear is exactly what dose is optimal for everyone. Uh, you know, many of the studies had people doing 45 minutes a day, six days a week. That's a substantial dose. And there we see very, very dramatic changes. But even doing 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time will make changes. You'll start to see that, hmm, you're noticing yourself being more present, being better able to tolerate discomfort, actually enjoying central experiences more. We're better able to savor experiences when we uh, focus the mind uh, mindfully. Uh, and another huge benefit that comes out of this is learning how to step out of the thought stream. So when we were talking earlier of the, uh, the kind of evolutionary uh, uh, legacies we have that make us unhappy, certainly a huge one is our propensity to think all the time. And we talked about the negativity bias. Um, and it's really easy to see the relationship between thought and psychological suffering. We can do another little ac uh, activity right now to show that. Um, again, if you're uh, comfortable and you're not driving, close your eyes for a moment. And just bring to mind something that upsets you. Again, please don't overwhelm yourself with the worst problem ever, but just something that upsets you. And now I'd like you to reflect here and now, as you sit or walk or stand, wherever you are at the moment, here and now, if it weren't for the thought of this thing, would you be having a problem with it? And the answer is usually no. Even if the problem the, the thought is, oh, you know, my back hurts or some other pain, it's usually the fantasy that this pain is going to last forever or at least for a long time that causes the most distress. We're able to handle short periods of pain pretty darn well. It's the thought that this is going to last for a long time that causes us so much grief. And we start to notice there's an entire field of treatment called cognitive behavior therapy, which is based on the simple observation that, gosh, it's our thoughts that create our negative emotions. I mean, our negative emotions also create negative thoughts. So there's a kind of reciprocal process or loop that happens there. But gosh, you know, if I wasn't thinking all day long, or I wasn't believing in my thoughts all day long, I'd have a lot less suffering. And one of the things that happens with mindfulness practice, where we practice letting thoughts come and go, is we start to notice that, oh, thoughts are just thoughts. And it's an entirely different thing to have the experience of, oh, there's one of my thoughts of, of inadequacy, or there's one of my thoughts of something terrible going wrong, is very different from feeling I am inadequate or something terrible is going to happen. This ability to see thoughts as thoughts and not to believe in them so much, uh, which psychologists call this metacognitive awareness, um, but it's, it's really just a fancy name for seeing that a thought is a thought rather than necessarily a reality. This can provide enormous amounts of freedom. And this is super helpful when the thoughts are these feelings of inadequacy or these negative judgments about ourselves. In the first mindfulness, would you call that a kind of brief meditation you did, a mindfulness yeah, meditation? Yeah, very brief one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in the first one, speaking of overthinking, you were, you were just saying, experience this emotion, feel where it is in your body, 
and then move on to the next one. You weren't saying do anything with it. And I feel like I am very much a doer. And so I'm always noticing a feeling and then thinking, okay, what do I do about this? So is that a next step we should take? Or is it enough just to notice where you feel it in your body and name it and move on? It, you know, it depends on what the, what the emotion is. If Mm -hmm. I'm noticing that, gosh, I feel so lonely, uh, you know, I really don't have friends in my life. Yes, part of what one might do is feel that. And part of what one might do is take a look at what's holding me back from reaching out to people and, Mm -hmm. you know, take behavioral action to do something about that. If we're unhappy at our work, yeah, we might want to try to change that in some way. But any of these behavioral changes that we make are going to be much easier and much more effective if first we've learned how to be with, tolerate, and open to whatever the feelings are at the moment. Because this pattern of trying to avoid painful feelings actually just multiplies our misery. Um, Mm. You know, the, the person who avoids going to parties because they feel socially anxious at the party is not going to get over their social anxiety. The thing that's mm-hmm. going to help that person get over the social anxiety is going to be going to the party, feeling anxious, and saying hello to people anyway, being able to have the courage to feel the fear. And that's that courage is one of the things that mindfulness practices help us to um uh, to develop. Now, an actual kind of formal mindfulness practice typically involves, and I don't think we have time to do this, but I'll give people, I can give our listeners uh, resources for this, you know, typically involves setting aside some time and picking some sensation, whether it be the breath or listening to sounds or something like that, and just beginning to bring the attention to that sensation. And every time the mind wanders into thoughts, bringing it back to the, uh, to the sensation. Um, at uh, my website, which is uh, drronsiegel.com. I'm, I imagine you can provide a link to that. There's all sorts of meditations that are linked to uh, books that I've written about mindfulness practice. One of them, the, the best introductory book being uh, called The Mindfulness Solution, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems. And that looks at how to use these practices to work with anxiety, to work with depression, to work with interpersonal difficulties, even to work with um uh, with uh, uh, chronic pain and stress-related disorders and the like. Mm, great. I was going to ask you where we could go for resources and meditations because I love the ones that you did so much. So that's awesome that we can go to your website. Yeah, and they're and they're free to download and just just in, just experiment with them. Oh, cool. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. Is mindfulness meditation the same thing as typical meditation, or is it somewhat different? So... So meditation is a very broad category that refers to any kind of mind training, Uh, you know, training the mind to either focus attention or, you know, meditation could be Christian contemplative prayer where you're, you know, reviewing scriptures and repeating them and reflecting on them. Mindfulness meditation is a particular kind of meditation, which is about awareness of present experience with acceptance in which we ground our attention, not in the thought stream so much, but in some sensory experience and practice accepting what's happening. Practice not trying so much to control things, but accepting what happens. And it turns out actually that mindfulness practice is a really great tool 
for working with the sort of the big third area that we were talking about, which is all the ways in which we can wind up feeling not good enough in our lives. Um, because of our propensity for social comparison, most of us uh, are in one of two states much of the time. Either we're feeling like not so good about ourselves, we're not really up to snuff, we really need to improve, you know, I need to lose weight, I need to get a better job, I need more friends, I need to do something to, to be more successful in the world, or I need to be a better person, I need to be kinder, I need to be more generous or more giving. Or we are feeling pretty good about ourselves, but we're pedaling as fast as we can to make sure that we don't crash and burn. Mm. That, you know, I mean, so many of us in our work lives, in our social lives are super active, super active, afraid of missing out, afraid of slipping, slipping up, afraid of falling behind. And then we're kind of stressed, trying to feel good about ourselves and avoid feeling bad about ourselves. So Wherever we are on that continuum, either feeling bad about ourselves or struggling to feel good about ourselves, it's very unpleasant to be doing this all the time. And anything we can do to free ourselves is going to be helpful. And one of the ways that mindfulness practice can help us with this is simply beginning to watch this metacognitive awareness I was talking about before. We can really start to see every time our mind makes some kind of judgment about how we're doing. I've had scores of them over the course of this podcast. Hmm. Did I mention the things I should be mentioning? Was that a good story? And some of these, some of these are useful, right? Because I, yeah, I want to do a good job here of communicating useful ideas on the podcast. But some of it is about, you know, how's Ron doing? You know, am I a successful teacher? Am I not a successful teacher? Am I good at this? Am I not good at this? And that, that extra layer, the evaluating oneself as how am I doing and comparing myself to, you know, in this case, you know, other psychologists, or perhaps you compare yourself to other podcasters, you know, that that layer of it actually isn't so helpful to us. That's, that's a lot of energy put into just trying to hold on to this good feeling about feeling good about ourselves and ward off this bad feeling about feeling bad about ourselves. And actually maybe it might be, um, useful, another very tiny little meditative exercise for us and for our, um, our listeners. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, Brooke, if, if you're comfortable participating in this and, and reporting back, that would be great. Yeah. So, so let me invite you to think about something that, you know, we all have things that we rely on to try to feel good about ourselves. So think about the, maybe sometime in the past, recently or further distant past, where something went well, and you felt really good about yourself. And try to identify now, what was it that I felt good about? Was it that I felt like I was smart or successful or attractive or kind or good? So many different things. I, I don't want to limit the options. But try to identify, so in what way did I feel good about myself? And remember what that felt like. And notice how, how it feels in the body. And maybe even exaggerate the body posture that goes with it. You know, for me, it's like my head's held kind of high and my chest is a bit uplifted. And I feel like, yeah, Ron's pretty cool. I feel pretty good about me in this moment. And just enjoy that for a moment and notice how it feels in the body. And here again, maybe put your hand over the part of the body where you feel that. Because unfortunately, it's not going to last because this never lasts. <laughs> So now allow yourself to remember a time where kind of the opposite happened, where in this very same area, you felt like you weren't doing such a good job, or you were less than others, or, you know, you had failed to live up to your ideals or whatever it was, but where you felt kind of a self-esteem collapse, didn't feel good about yourself. And exaggerate the bodily posture with that. What did that look like? For me, my head's kind of drooped. My chest is a little bit collapsed got a pit, this pit in my stomach kind of feeling. And put your hand over where you feel that discomfort and notice what that's like. And good news, this isn't gonna last either. Um, we can now come to a kind of neutral alert posture where we're neither inflated nor deflated. 
And I guess if, if I can ask you, um, you don't have to share if you don't want to, although you're welcome to, what the criteria was that made you feel good or bad about yourself. But how did it feel in your body when you felt good about yourself? And how did it feel in your body when you felt bad about yourself? Um, similar feelings, I think, as you did, feeling good about myself. Just I felt myself kind of grow uh, up, I would say, just the whole uh-huh. feeling of up in my posture. And then conversely, really tightness and kind of slumping when I felt bad. Absolutely. And and the really interesting thing about this is we all use different criteria. You know, I mean, for one person, it's, you know, how smart I am. For another person, it's how physically fit I am. You know, lots and lots of things. Um, but we all kind of go up and down in this way. And one of the things we know in the psychology field is whenever there's a really big contrast between something that brings a good feeling and something that brings a bad feeling, we're ripe for addiction. There's a reason why people readily get addicted to crack cocaine. I don't have personal experience, but my understanding is you feel really, really good for a little while after smoking crack and you feel really, really bad when it wears off. And what's the solution? More crack. Right? Mm-hmm. And this is how this works with these self-esteem boosts, right? When we feel good about ourselves, it feels so good. And when we feel bad about ourselves, it feels so bad that we start to scramble to get the next like on social media, to get the next validation, to get the next success, to do something that's going to make us feel good about ourselves. But the problem is we can't win. And we can't win really for two reasons. One is what goes up goes down. Even if we're like, let's say it's athletics, it's our thing. And we're so good, we're the Olympic gold medalist. What's the chance of being the gold medalist in four years? Not so great. Yeah. And in other areas, the things that once floated our boat don't do it anymore. You know, think of all the accomplishments we have in life, you know, uh, learning to um, ride a bicycle, learning to read and write, um, you know, uh, going out to the store the first time ourselves, getting our first job, graduating from high school or, or, or um, other higher learning, you know, all of these things, when we have the accomplishment, first boyfriend or girlfriend, wow, they feel so good, but then we habituate to them and then they no longer float our boat. And then we need something else in order to feel good enough. So because of this, putting our eggs in the basket of trying to, you know, improve so as to feel good about ourselves ultimately doesn't work. We just recalibrate. Um, we compare ourselves to others. You know, I, you know, I invite all of our listeners, you know, to think, uh, let's say what you might be doing in the job world or maybe the parenting world or, or whatever, whatever your life role is. And, uh, chances are that when you're judging yourself, you're now not comparing yourself to, oh, I don't know, 15-year-old kids, you're comparing yourself to your peers and to other people who have accomplished more or less what you've accomplished, but you're feeling good or bad compared to them. So we keep changing our rulers, our yardsticks for measuring this. So this is why this, you know, so doesn't work. And we really need other other um, avenues uh, to be putting our energies into that are, that are far more sustainable than trying to uh, boost our feelings about ourselves. Hmm. Well, this conversation has been such a treat, I will say, um, especially the kind of hands-on meditations you provided us with. I love that. Uh, one of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I think the health investment to me means choosing those things that uh, support our well-being and to the extent to which we can, letting go of those things that maybe have this addictive quality in the sense that they feel good in the short run, but that aren't so useful for our long run well-being. And in the context of what we've talked about, this, this would mean slowly developing the courage to be able to bear discomfort and not be so hooked on trying to always feel good because that it works in the short run, but in the long run, it traps us in anxiety and substance problems and depression and all sorts of difficulties. And the other one would be that while we do have this instinct to compare ourselves to others and to try to come out on top, we also have instincts for love, for cooperation, and for connection, and to be putting much more of our attention into those. Mm, I love that. Because those are, are much more sustainable. 
And yeah. uh, the recent book that I wrote on this is 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 uh, called uh, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. And it's all about what are the alternatives to trying to feel good about ourselves that can make us actually thrive in the world, uh, both in terms of physical health and in in psychological health, how to develop safe social connection, how to develop the mindful ability to savor simple and ordinary things in our lives, how to experience gratitude for what we have and how to really accept and embrace ourselves as we are, rather than be constantly involved in this this quest to try to be something else and better in a way that uh, uh, that we can't win. Hmm. Well, I will put links to your website and the books you mentioned. Uh, is there any other place that listeners should follow and find you? Are you on social media at all, or is um, your I, website the best? No, I am a bit, but the website's best. Um, you can you know sign up to follow me on social media there, but uh, my social media skills and presence is somewhat limited. Um, I do invite people who are interested to uh, join my mailing list, though, because I, I, I have uh, regular workshops and programs, as well as a lot of free material and a lot of free webinars and things that I do online. And uh, uh, if you, when you go to the website, which is drronsiegel.com, you'll see the option to join the mailing list. And if you um, just give me your email address there, you'll, you'll, be, uh, you'll be notified. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all of those things. And I just want to thank you so much again for being here. I learned a ton and I know my audience did as well. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.